Hello, you're listening to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. Thanks for sticking with us after our week away. We are, for now at least, back to our regular programming and here to present you with another instalment in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. Back on the ones and twos, I'm Lewis DeFreitz. I'm a third year PhD student and today I'll be the person talking to Catherine Poor, who is an Associate Professor in North American Women's History at Corpus Christi College at the University of Oxford. Professor Poor's work focuses on gender, race, medicine and the body in the history of early North America and the Caribbean. Her first book, The Politics of Reproduction, Race, Medicine and Fertility in the Age of Abolition, was published by Oxford University Press in 2017. The book examines the centrality of debates surrounding the fertility of Afro-Caribbean women during the late 18th and early 19th century. The period in question saw the emergence of numerous new scientific and governmental strategies for managing sex and childbearing, such as centralised nurseries, the discouragement of extended breastfeeding and offering financial incentives for childbearing. Professor Poor effectively argues that these policies, many of which are still commonplace today, were founded in a drive to regulate women's bodies and to control the labour market on Caribbean plantations. Combining a broad history of colonial policy and debate with a micro-historical perspective that centres the experiences of Afro-Caribbean women, the book demonstrates that discourses surrounding the manipulation of women's fertility found its basis in racism and a shared consensus on the necessity of exploited labour. Before publishing the book, Professor Poor published a number of articles in academic journals, including The Politics of Childbearing in the British Caribbean and the Atlantic World During the Age of Abolition, 1776-1838, that was published in Past and Present in 2013, and another article titled The Curious Cates of Mary Hylas, Wives, Slaves and the Limits of British Abolitionism in Slavery and Abolition in 2014. It seems that since the release of the book two years ago, Professor Poor has shifted her attention somewhat from childbearing to a focus on sexual health more generally. As such, the paper that she presented to the Cambridge American History Seminar on Monday afternoon was titled Race and Venereal Disease in the Atlantic World. Professor Poor spoke to me about the paper and lots of other things on Tuesday morning. Catherine, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, could you tell me what the paper last night was about? Uh, yeah, um, so the paper was uh, about venereal disease and race in mm. the Atlantic world. Um, I'm interested specifically in understanding the history of venereal disease uh, alongside the history of the Atlantic slave trade uh, and of racial slavery in mm. the Americas. Could you very quickly just define what the venereal disease would mean to us today and how venereal disease was conceived of in the period that you're discussing? Yeah, uh, maybe I'll start with the latter in that I'm interested in uh, venereal disease during the, well, long 18th century, maybe mid-17th through early Mm -hmm. 19th centuries. Um, uh, And what I'm interested in specifically is what people at that time would have called yaws Mm -hmm. uh, and also the great pox. These are two different disease, venereal disease categories um, that sometimes overlap and sometimes are seen as distinct. Um, So I'm interested in tracing that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's interesting to me uh, that modern medical experts think these are more or less the same disease, many of them have argued, um, uh, what's called the Unitarian theory, which argues that these different names for venereal disease around the world are all different forms of syphilis. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so if that's understood as syphilis now, why were they understood 
differently in the period that you're looking at? Uh, so what I'm interested in is uh, Oyo's on the one hand, which is associated with the Caribbean, uh, with the African diaspora, uh, with West Africa. Um, uh, on the one hand, the Great Pox on the other hand, which is associated more with Europe um, and, uh, and how differently Yaws and the Great Pox were uh, perceived um, during the long 18th century um, among, on the one hand, people of African descent, healers of African descent, uh, and on the other hand, um, healers and sufferers in Europe. Um, in association with the Great Pox. So two very different histories for these two different disease categories, um, even though modern metal, medical experts would argue that they are more or less the same thing. Right. Uh, could you sketch out how, what the understandings were, I guess, from this like African diaspora, how it was understood, how yours was transmitted and... Yeah, and I suppose, yes. yeah, in relation to that, how is it treated and how that differed from European understandings of the Great Pox? Yes. Uh, so um, what I have found um, in accounts of uh, African healers uh, in the Americas uh, is that, that they um, understand yaws to be a childhood disease um, best managed by inoculation mm -hmm. um, and uh, also have a sort of a botanical um, tradition of medicaments um, that that they believe are effective um, for uh, after inoculating children for um, tending them through the disease. Um, on the other hand, the great pox, which is sort of the word at the time for syphilis, syphilis mm -hmm. is a, a modern, uh, a later uh, word for the disease. Um, the great pox was understood by Europeans to be sexual in nature yeah. um, and uh, to be uh, indicative of sexual misbehavior, mm -hmm. to be communicated um, by those with loose sexual morals and so on. Uh, and there's a lot of shame associated um, with those beliefs. Um, so people uh, in Europe who suffer from the great pox feel they have to hide the disease from others mm. that they have to seek out cures and uh in secret and so on right and you referred to inoculation earlier in your answer could you describe uh what inoculation is what it has its roots in historically and yeah, how it worked at the time. Yeah, well, inoculation was was a very new concept mm -hmm. to, uh, and, and in the paper I'm I'm talking about Europe a lot. Mostly, I focused on Britain in the yeah. paper. Um, uh, it was a very new concept to the British during this period, um, but uh, uh, has a, it seems a, an older history in Africa, uh, and in fact, there are accounts, um, for example, of smallpox inoculation being introduced to um, white colonists by way of enslaved Africans. Um, and similarly, uh, Yaw's inoculation is something that seems to have been brought from West Africa, that knowledge mm -hmm. of how to inoculate, um, and then conveyed, that uh, idea was conveyed to white colonists um, in sites around the Atlantic slave trade. Right, and you mentioned yesterday in the paper yeah this idea of african remedies catching on in europe and britain yes is that part of that same ex i guess exchange of medical knowledge yes uh, so what's interesting one of the things that's interesting to me is that early on in the late 17th early 18th centuries uh 
British healers who saw Yaws and the Great Pox or knew of the two things thought they were very similar and possibly even the same thing. Um, uh, there were theories circulating that Yaws was uh, came first and then was transmitted to Europe by the Atlantic slave trade where it became known as the Great Pox. Um, and because of this uh, um, idea that these were the same disease, uh, British healers were very interested in remedies um, that Africans used uh, to treat yaws mm -hmm. because they thought that might also be useful for the great pox. Um, and so these remedies circulate uh, alongside this idea of inoculation right. um, between uh, British, English, and uh, African healers. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be, I guess, like part of a broader fascination in Britain and Europe more broadly in I suppose like yeah, African knowledge and culture at the time. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I um I, I would say this is sort of of a piece with what Londa Scheibinger describes as bioprospecting yeah. that um that Europeans uh, during this period uh, have an interest in uh, in collecting remedies from both American Indians and also people of African descent um, that they think might be useful to them in Europe and mm -hmm. might even be profitable for them right. to sell um, to European sufferers. Okay. Um, so I would say that this is this is a part of that wider interest mm -hmm. in circulating medicaments from elsewhere in the globe um, towards Great Britain, towards mm. Europe. I guess there's a broader trend at the moment, at the time as well, like Sadia Qureshi writes about like people being brought over as well and exhibited for British audiences. Yes, right. Yeah. All sort of part of the curiosity yeah. of uh, tropical environments and new world environments and so on. But um, in your paper, uh, there seems to be, I'm not sure if it's like a tension or something, but... Uh, while this is all happening in Europe, things that look very different in the Caribbean itself in the way that Afro-Caribbean women in particular are treated. Could you describe? Yeah. Um, so uh, so I'm really interested and intrigued by this practice of inoculation. Um, what I've found in the sources is that frequently, uh, as it's described, it's uh, enslaved Afro-Caribbean women and especially mothers inoculating children yeah. uh, and then uh, sort of demanding uh thereafter the the right to um to care for those children uh during their suffering um and uh and so there is a tension about that i find uh on caribbean plantations uh, that that on the one hand there is this curiosity uh among white healers about african medical knowledge um, but on the other hand there's there is a growing resistance to the practice of inoculation yeah. um it, because slave owners complain frequently in the historical archive uh, about um, it, the the fact that this is taking mothers away from their work. Okay. Um, and so it interferes with order, I, I think, uh, mm. on plantations and with the expected routines of labor. Um, and so is objectionable to yeah. plantation managers. Mm -hmm. That I guess, from, I wouldn't want to take the perspective of a plantation manager, but I suppose for them <laughs> it is like a like a, they're trying to weigh up the positives of like someone potentially getting better or just their 
their value that they add to the workforce at the time. Is that it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that this becomes that tension between, on the one hand, wanting to keep one's workforce in good health, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, wanting to keep one's workforce working at productive labor. Yeah. Um, th- that that uh, is something that, that escalates as the Atlantic slave trade comes to an end. Um, So increasingly, um, slave owners are are being quite calculating about how to, on the one hand, keep their workforce healthy, uh, and on the other hand, uh, keep enslaved women working. Mm -hmm. And I suppose my question would be, how effective or pervasive is this system that um, plantation managers before and after abolition, like how effective is that system? And how coercive is it? And is there any extent do Afro-Caribbean women like formulate spaces of resistance, or do they yeah. to adapt? Uh, that's that's a good question. I I think that um, that Yaw's inoculation in and of itself is mm. a, a sort of resistance, in yeah. that they anchor claims or customary rights to mother on that procedure. Um, uh, but, but I, I think that that is disrupted to some extent, um, during the age of abolition, right. uh, during that, that process of abolishing the Atlantic slave trade as slave owners, plantation owners, British politicians all become more concerned <clears throat> about managing motherhood, uh, in order to, to keep both sides of things going, keep enslaved women's reproductive labor going and also keep productive labor going. Um, and, and what I think they, um, they do is increasingly get involved in managing, um, the care of children with yaws themselves. And in fact, removing children with yaws from the care of their mothers, locking them up in plantation hospitals, um, uh, removing them uh, entirely from their custody and making them wards of the state and so on, forcing them into apprenticeship by the time that apprenticeship gets going in the 1830s. Right. And I suppose on that note, those, those kind of changes and developments you described there seem to mirror pretty closely onto your previous book on childbearing. Mm -hmm. And mm-hmm. it seems to be this underlying like drive towards a state control and coercion of Afro-Caribbean women with yeah this idea of their productive labour force in mind. Could you describe yeah the connection between the book that you've quite recently put out yes. and yeah this project? Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, the the first book I was really interested in tracing how the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade changes mothering for Afro-Caribbean women. Um, it, how um, the demand for the reproduction of labor supply locally um, uh, puts new pressure on women and also puts new pressure on slave owners and on British politicians thinking about how to organize the British Empire. Um, so uh, so I was interested in, um, uh, oh, for example, shifts in plantation management focused uh, on uh, um, encouraging women to bear children by giving them rewards and yeah. uh, that sort of thing. Um, so so this in some ways builds on that. Um, the other, I guess, piece of it that is tied to that first project is that I, in order to understand the motivations of British abolitionists for changing 
the way that they manage motherhood and understanding their their strategies for managing motherhood, I needed to understand how they thought about race and fertility. Um, and I found uh, that that many of them believed that uh, venereal disease was a racially characteristic thing with people of African descent, um, and that it was inhibiting their fertility. Um, so I became intrigued by this, um, these medical ideas that were circulating, um, and informing the way that British politicians were thinking about fertility and venereal disease and race. Right. And I've got one more question about the paper and the benefit of this interview happening after the seminar for once is that I can <laughs> steal questions that I like from yes. the Q&A last night. So there was a question asked by a PhD student called Meg Roberts who asked about how tied to the story you describe is uh, to like the roughly simultaneous emergence of a push to spatially separate and institutionalise people considered sick, unwell or disabled in Britain and the United States. That's right. And yeah. to what extent do ideologies of racial difference and I guess slavery and abolition, to what extent are they differentiated from the practices like yet yeah, in Britain and the United States with white patients. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I, I think that's a. I found that question really fe- uh, provocative and and fascinating because I, uh, it made me think more about how um, isolation uh, is is growing a growing strategy among these sort of colonial managers, slave owners, and so on um, for the management of yaws. Um, one of the things that the paper argued was that um, that. In place of a, a willingness to allow women to inoculate their children, um, increasingly those people were focused on disease eradication mm-hmm. instead. Um, and one of the strategies for eradication was isolation uh, of people suffering from yaws in hospitals. Um, and uh, and so I think that there. Um, there is actually quite a bit of um, resonance and interplay between yeah. the, those strategies as they're operating, uh, strategies of isolation as they're operating um, in the metropole and as they're operating in the colonies. Um, and that it's important for us as historians to, to understand um, that, that, they, uh, that those developments are, are not only traveling from Europe to the colonies, but in yeah. fact that the colonies are in some way a laboratory also for um, strategies of isolation and disease eradication um, rather than uh, oh well this sort of communal knowledge that preceded it about inoculation right brilliant okay mm. so we've got a few general questions yes. that we always finish with so <laughs> right. uh, first of all what's a book or article that you've read in the last 12 months that inspired or challenged your approach uh, oh uh, you know i i uh, think that this article that i assigned recently to my students in uh, a, a methodology course um for young historians uh, uh by bruno latour um, it's a, a classic old article of his called How to Talk About the Body. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the three uh, assertions that he puts forward in that article um, is that they, the body has to be educated to know what it knows. It has to be educated to be affected by its environment, um, that it's not a simple sort of um, uh 
observation or pulling in of knowledge from uh, outside the body. Um, the example that he gives is of um, a, a nose being educated to smell um, by uh, by a sort of perfume education kit where various scents uh, are put in front of the nose um, in, in little vials uh, and the nose learns to distinguish the sort of fine points um, between different scents. Um, and, and I'm really interested in that idea that the, the body learns to be affected. Yeah. Um, and, and it made me think in my own work about how I can trace out um, how the body learns to be affected by disease in different ways. How does the body learn to perceive a disease as sexual? Yeah. Um, how does the body learn to perceive a disease as... as uh, unthreatening as dire as and so on so so i, I think that there's something interesting there about yeah, definitely. bodies definitely. being affected by illness yeah i guess yeah like how you recognize what a cold is and knowing that that's i guess unthreatening now and yes would have considered it historically okay uh second of all what's the most interesting place that you've been for research Oh, Barbados, I think. Yeah. yeah, I spent some time there. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was writing my DPhil, I, I was interested in a, a, a Bayesian midwife named Dahl um, and spent time looking at the plantation records there and um, uh, working in, in various archives. And uh, it's, it's a lovely place. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And last of all, as we ask all our guests, what's your favorite album? Uh, oh, yeah, that's this is a tough one. Um, I, I, I'm really fond of Nick Cave, uh, Nick Cave's album, The Good Son. I go back right. to that one a lot. It's got everything in it. It's yeah. a little bit of jazz and uh, a little bit of uh, biblical rage and a little bit of, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, uh, of sort of folksy um sound and it's it's just a wonderful mishmash of things yeah he's I one of those guys to he again can just again. do it all can he like he can do a bit of everything yes he yeah. can he's yeah. a versatile artist yeah, yeah. great well Catherine yeah. paul thanks very much for joining me uh-huh thank thanks you thanks for listening to this episode of the cambridge american history seminar podcast with Catherine paul and me we'll be back next week with another interview from another presenter at our seminar in the meantime let your friends know about what we're doing here Give us a rating or a review wherever you can. Follow us on Twitter at Comericanist and get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Cheers.